Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Um, I'm doing all right. We're starting to pack parts of our apartment for moving, kind of like going from, you know, least essential things first. So we've got like we're packing up our paperback books and things mm-hmm. like that as part of a slow process towards moving at the end of July. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but you're feeling okay? I know you uh, You don't like change. No, that's true. But I'm, I'm doing all right. It's all good. I'm excited <laughs> for this move. Awesome. How about you? Um, I'm good. Though, with us packing, um, we are cleaning along the way, as you should. And I'm allergic to dust, as long-time listeners might recall. So I got a stuffy nose yeah. and a bit of a sore throat. And I'm always, even though I know it's dust, I'm still like, what if it's COVID? When you've got anxiety, yeah, it's hard to make the fear go away. Well, to distract ourselves from the anxiety, Ben, what are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching Donovan's Brain from 1953. Directed by Felix E. Feist. This is not our first run-in with Donovan's Brain or, like, Donovan's Brain-adjacent content. Yeah. So let's kind of rewind time a bit and talk about what Donovan's Brain is, where it comes from, and how we've brushed into it before. Well, Donovan's Brain comes from the brain of Kurt Siedmack. Right. (laughs) It is a novel written by Kurt Siedmack in 1942, though it uh, originally appeared as, like, a three-part serial in the Black Mask magazine. Yeah. So Siedmack, obviously, is someone who we're familiar with. Quite familiar with, but I'll give just a quick rundown about him. Mm -hmm. He was born in 1902 in Dresden, Germany. As he grew up, he earned a mathematics degree and started writing novels. His earnings went into producing movies for his director brother, Robert Siedmack, and getting involved in the German film industry, and he would write novels, short stories, and screenplays for the German film industry. Um, many of his work, his novels and short stories, were actually adapted into German films. Um, kind of the most notable one is FP1 Doesn't Answer, from 1932. Hmm. As the Nazis rose to power in Germany, Siedmack immigrated to the UK, and then to the U.S. by 1937. He was mainly working on screenplays at this time, but still, you know, dabbling in non-film-related work. His big break came with 1941's The Wolfman. Yeah. Which is episode 88, if anyone wants to go listen back to that and kind of hear how Mac had a very unique perspective to bring to The Wolfman. So that's 1941, and Donovan's Brain, the novel, came out the following year. Gotcha. Screenplays... Just screenplays that we've seen from Seed Mac mm-hmm. include Invisible Man Returns from 1940, Black Friday from 1940, The Ape from 1940, The Wolfman from 1941, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman from 1943, 
I Walked with a Zombie from 1943, Son of Dracula from 1943, The Climax from 1944, House of Frankenstein from 1944, The Beast with Five Fingers from 1946, and Bride of the Krilla from 1951, which he also directed. Yes. And that's episode 156, if people want to listen to how he got into directing that film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, Kurt Mac kind of like was near the top tier of American horror movie writers in the 1940s. Not near the top tier. He was the top tier. <laughs> I mean, it's like him and whoever was writing for Luton. Yeah, so that's the thing. So we've talked about in our episodes on his films how his work are sometimes hits or misses. Yeah. The Wolfman, definitely a hit. I Walked With a Zombie, a hit, but... Other creatives were involved. Mm-hmm. He had, was working off of a story based on an article by Inez Wallace, and then Luton likes to do rewrites, and you know a lot of people working on that script. Stuff like Bride of the Gorilla. Mm, some stuff in there where you're like, see it, Mac, I thought you'd be more on top of this. Right. Um, stuff like The Ape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? So, you know, he comes and goes. Uh, he's definitely getting the work. But in terms of, like, quality cinematic horror, mm-hmm. he comes and goes. Yeah, I think the the, the pure, um, like, quantity of his output, you know... And that's make... just the stuff we saw. He that's made right. a lot of oh, other yeah, stuff. Oh, yeah, exactly. But, like, the quantity of that output means that, you know, whether his stuff was good or bad, he kind of was setting the tone mm-hmm. for American horror because, especially at Universal, like he was their top guy and then anyone else writing horror was kind of in the like next tier down and having to still kind of work within the benchmarks that Seed Mac himself laid out. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Now Donovan's brain, um, like I said, Seed Mac wrote it in 1942, but before then he's Mm -hmm. had some like similar premise types of stories that I think would have informed how he wrote this. So I'm thinking of Black Friday, most specifically, um, so from 1940, where uh, a guy gets a sort of partial brain transplant um, that happens to come from a criminal, and so then the guy who receives the transplant starts going on a crime spree and remembering the criminal's past. Yeah, he he sort of develops like a split personality, but when the criminal personality is in charge... He's basically going out for revenge against, like, dudes who had wronged this criminal. It's very much a prototype for Donovan's brain, I think. Yeah. And there had been a movie that had come out in the UK in 1936 that officially Seed Mac wasn't involved in, but because he was involved in the film industry, he might have, like, been in talks with the writers. He probably would have seen it at the very least. Yeah, yeah. the Man Who Changed His Mind. Yeah, I think that that's our earliest, like, brain swap movie, right? Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, sim- similar kind of thing, you know, you take the brain from person A, put it into person B, and person B is person A, but in person B's body, yeah. etc. I think the element that starts with Black Friday and moves into, like, Donovan's brain and, and subsequent things um, that, like identifies things as whether they're a Donovan's brain like ripoff or not is when the brain donor personality 
is someone who is, like, otherwise essentially dead mm-hmm. and is, like, using the donee, the recipient. The host. The host, yeah, to, like, carry out revenge, right? Because sure. I feel like that's a very specific element, you know? Yeah, well, let me run through the novel. Absolutely. So it's written as diary entries from a Dr. Patrick Corey and his experiments on keeping a brain alive in a jar with his assistant, Dr. Scrat. Now, these experiments have been fairly successful. You know, you keep the brain in the saline solution and you have electricity running to it and it seems to stay alive, but that's kind of, kind of it. Then one night, um, millionaire and megalomaniac W.H. Donovan crashes his plane near the um, secluded... Lab? S- lab, yeah. House. He has been on the run for tax evasion and other criminal activities. Dr. Corey heads to the plane crash and isn't able to save Donovan's life, but is able to save his brain. <laughs> They're able to put it into the jar, you know, tell that it's alive, but they can't communicate with it. It's just there. At night, Corey starts to receive telepathic commands from Donovan's brain. First, it starts with getting messages and writing them in Donovan's handwriting, um, all the way to starting to take on pieces of Donovan's personality, the way he spoke, his mannerisms, even a limp in his walk. Now, Donovan is using Corey to continue his criminal activities. In order to cover those activities, some violence and uh, near murders <laughs> start happening. To resist Donovan's control, Corey starts repeating this rhyme, because Seed Mac loves rhymes. Yep. Amidst the mists and coldest frosts, he thrusts his fists against the posts and still insists he sees the ghosts. Using that rhyme, Corey is able to resist the commands um, that would lead him to commit a murder, and he resists long enough to get back to the lab and break the jar and basically kill Donovan's brain. Mm-hmm. So this was a very successful novel. Yeah. Um, there was actually a uh, radio play adaptation two years later, uh, adapted by Orson Welles for the CBS series Suspense. And throughout the course of his life, Seed Mac would actually write two sequels to Donovan's Brain. Hmm. First was Hauser's Memory in 1968, and the second being Gabriel's Body in 1991. All right. I didn't know Seed Mac lived that long. He lived till 2000. Wow. Yeah, and he passed away peacefully in his sleep, so that's kind of nice. Good for him. Yeah. So I mentioned Black Friday as, like, similar premise, hmm. and that's by Seed Mac. The most explicit adaptation is The Lady and the Monster from 1944. So that's episode 117 if you guys want to take a listen. Um, And it's explicitly an adaptation. It follows the book fairly closely. There's some minor changes, but not hugely. Yeah, it adds a lady and a monster. Yeah. That's its big change because it adds a female character who is played by uh, the studio boss's girlfriend and it adds, like, another scientist who Corey is the assistant of, played by Eric von Stroheim. Yeah. And that's kind of the the big differences to the story. So that movie is ranked number 84 on the list. 
Uh, so just below halfway. Right. And that's an adaptation of Donovan's brain, but Seedmack himself didn't actually work on it. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He still would have been paid, but yeah. not, uh, not to actually work on it. And then the most recent um, Donovan's Brain-esque film, film that we've watched is The Phantom Speaks from 1945. That's episode 129B, because we had <laughs> accidentally missed it. And that's when <laughs> an executed killer possesses a pseudoscience scientist mm-hmm. and continues committing crimes through that possession. Yeah. And that film, similar to Black Friday, is not ranked because they are more of a crime thriller type of movie rather yeah. than horror. Um, but the premise is kind of close because the scientist goes to the guy before he's executed and he's like, I believe the soul continues on. Like, I'll connect with you. And dude's like, dope. And then... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that same... There's no, like science this time it's like a supernatural thing but it's the same basic premise and i think the reason why it like i kind of pegged it as being like oh this is a donovan's brain thing is just because the phantom speaks is also from the same studio as lady and the monster a year later so it feels like hey let's do this again but not based on that novel so we don't have to pay see it mac anything (laughs) so that's donovan's brain yeah, it's been an interesting ride seeing like these different iterations over the years. Yeah, and I'm not surprised that we got to a point where brain in a jar controls person because we've had, as we've kind of laid out some adjacent things, you have the um, transplanted uh, hormones mm-hmm. and whatever the fuck from other movies. Yeah, um, you hands. Have, yeah, the, yeah, it goes all the way back to the hands of Orlac. But I think you could even go to, like, Frankenstein and, like, oh, no, he has a Abby normal brain. Right, yes. That's why he's bad. Yeah. 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 So, as we mentioned, um, Mac was not involved in The Lady and the Monster, um, primarily because he was under contract to Universal at the time and was writing and cranking out horror movies for them. But in the case of this adaptation of Donovan's brain, he was brought on to work on it by the film's producer, Alan Dowling. This was Dowling's first film production, for which he created the company Alan Dowling Productions. There would be only one other Alan Dowling production, the documentary Hunters of the Deep, produced the next year. Dowling was a poet and author born in 1908 in New York City. His work was published in numerous books, And in 1948, he took over publication of the avant-garde literary magazine, The Partisan Review. And this lasted until 1953, when he founded his movie production company. So, I think the plan here, (laughs) because this guy was otherwise like, you know, this avant-garde New York literary poet. Yeah. um, I think the plan here was to produce something in the sci-fi horror, like, mold that was popular and cheap at the time to kind of get like a quick, easy hit to then like lead to other, like more artistic things down the, the road. Sure. But that didn't really pan out. It no, sounds like. no. Uh, after Dowling left the movie business, he wrote the librettos for several operas. <laughs> He's just all over the place. And then he sponsored many young violinists to attend a prestigious music school in London where his wife was an instructor. 
uh, and he passed away in 1983. So you'd think that Dowling and the producer he hired, Tom Grease, would have brought Siedmak on to adapt his novel to a screenplay. But instead, they hired writer Hugh Brooke to do the adaptation and brought Siedmak on to direct. Oh, neat. That fits with Siedmak's transition mm-hmm. from Bride of the Gorilla. However, uh, this situation quickly deteriorated. Uh, the producers sort of had their own ideas about what the movie should be and, you know, how to make it marketable, and Siedmak would not budge on any of these points, uh, insisting <laughs> on having his own way and, like, making the movie the way he wanted it to be made. Editor Herbert Strock, who had worked with Siedmak when he directed The Magnetic Monster earlier in this year, pleaded to the producers on Siedmak's behalf, but ultimately they chose to fire him, uh, which hurt Siedmak immensely, who later refused to even see the film. Yeah, I can understand why he would be very upset about that. So to replace Siedmak, the producers brought on Felix Feist, who also took the opportunity to rewrite the script while he was at it. Felix E. Feist was born in 1910 in New York City. His father, Felix F. Feist, was an MGM sales executive. So Feist began working at MGM at age 19 as a newsreel cameraman, as well as shooting screen tests and travelogues. In 1933, he directed his first feature film, Deluge, the first sort of apocalyptic disaster movie. Dope. Yeah, it has a legendary special effects sequence of the destruction of New York by, like, a typhoon, which was then, like, recreated shot for shot as an homage in Roland Emmerlich's The Day After Tomorrow in 2004. Like, the entire genre of, like, big natural disaster destroys city comes from that movie. Uh, Through the 1940s, Feist directed several films noir, And Donovan's Brain was actually his second last feature film before he would move to directing television until his death in 1965. The film's cinematographer is the award-winning Joseph Birock. Born in 1903 in New York City, he dropped out of high school to pursue his passion of a career in film. He became a lab tech in New Jersey in 1918 and worked his way up through various companies in the 1920s until he was promoted to camera operator at Paramount. He moved to L.A. and worked for United Artists, and then RKO, where he became an assistant cinematographer. When World War II broke out, he became a cameraman with the Army Signal Corps. At the end of the war, he filmed the brutalities of the Dachau concentration camp, and he ended the war with the rank of Major. That would be a tough job. Yeah. But a very important one. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1946, he had his first credit as cinematographer when he shot Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. In 1952, he shot Buona Devil, the first 3D feature film. Oh. And after Donovan's Brain, he would go on to shoot the remake of The Bat in 1959, uh, 13 Ghosts for William Castle in 1960, the original Flight of the Phoenix in 1965, uh, The Detective, starring Frank Sinatra in 1968, Escape from the Planet of the Apes in 1971, Blazing Saddles in 1974, the Towering Inferno in 1974, for which he won an Oscar, uh, and Airplane in 1980, as well as its sequel in 1982. Birok also did, of course, a lot of feature films in addition to those, as well as shooting 26 episodes of the Adventures of Superman television series from 1956 to 1958. 
uh, and he would retire in 1989, uh, passing away in 1996 at age 93. Wow. Yeah. The film stars Lou Ayers as Dr. Patrick Corey. He was born in 1908 in Minnesota, and he was originally a musician before leaving the big band he was on tour with to pursue acting. He began acting on film in 1929, and his lead role in the original 1930 version of All Quiet on the Western Front made him a star and won him a contract at Universal. He left Universal in 1934 for Fox, then to Republic, where he was afforded the opportunity to direct. In 1938, he was signed to MGM, where he played the role of Dr. Kildare in a series of nine films from 1938 to 1942. In that year, uh, Ayers was drafted, but beliefs that he had kind of gained and formed working on All Quiet on the Western Front led him to declaring himself a conscientious objector. Mm. This led to a great public outcry against Ayers and a significant dip in his reputation. He eventually served in the war as a non-combat medic in the Pacific Theater for three years. He continued acting after the war, but his career never fully recovered. When NBC offered him the Dr. Kildare television series in 1961, he said he would only do it if the show refused to have any cigarette advertising. So NBC cast Richard Chamberlain instead. Oh, no. Yeah, I guess it's like the 60s. Mm-hmm. Ayers passed away in 1996 at age 88. His love interest in the movie, uh, who is not a character in the book, is played by actress Nancy Davis, better known today as Nancy Reagan. Oh, oh, shit. She was born Anne Frances Robinson in 1921 in New York City, though she was called Nancy practically from birth. Her mother was actress Edith Prescott Luckett, and her mother remarried to neurosurgeon Loyal Davis in 1929, which led to Nancy's name change to Nancy Davis. She graduated college in 1943 with a major in English and drama, and with her mother's help, she started getting stage roles and then a screen test with MGM in 1949, who signed her to a seven-year contract, typing her as the dependable good woman. Her name was placed on the Hollywood blacklist by mistake. Uh, <laughs> so she went to the president of the Screen Actors Guild at the time to get the situation rectified. This was actor Ronald Reagan. Mm. They dated for three years before marrying in 1952. And she left her MGM contract the very next year because she wanted more variety in her roles. She regarded Donovan's Brain as an utterly silly film and did not really understand the script or what it was about or what her character was doing. She retired from acting in 1962 to focus on her marriage and her family. And then, of course... Ronald Reagan became governor of California, and then he became president of the United States, and he did a lot of stuff as president, and she did a lot of stuff as first lady. That's all really kind of outside the scope of this podcast. Uh, so if you want to learn more about Nancy Reagan and her deal, there's a lot of places you can go do that. Yeah. Uh, but she passed away in 2016 at age 94. Okay. A familiar face in the cast is veteran actor Tom Powers, who is perhaps oh. best remembered today as the murdered husband in Double Indemnity, but was also Harvey Bogardus, the criminal who dies and then possesses the dude, in The Phantom Speaks in 1945. Yeah. 
The director's wife, Lisa Howard, also appears in the film in a minor role. Uh, she was 27 years old at the time and had been acting since she was 18. However, she quit acting and also divorced Feist soon after this film. <laughs> Hopefully not citing being put in this movie? No, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, because she switched careers into journalism. In 1960, she became the first American reporter to interview Nikita Khrushchev for the Mutual Radio Network. And because of that, she was hired by ABC to become their first female correspondent for ABC TV News. In 1963, they made her television's first female news anchor uh, with her own show, uh, which I believe was called Lisa Howard and the News for Women, or something like that. Huh. It was like a mid-afternoon news show aimed at housewives. So like an Oprah Ellen show type yeah. of Yeah. Um, so there'd be news that she reported on as like a news anchor, and then every episode would have an interview with a major world figure, uh, which sort of makes sense because she kind of rose to fame from this Khrushchev interview, right? Yeah, which is pretretty cool. Yeah. So in 1963, after the Cuban Missile Crisis happened... Uh, and the U.S. blockade of Cuba happened, she interviewed Fidel Castro for the show. And she developed such a rapport with Castro that the CIA used her after that as the official go-between for negotiations between Castro and the White House regarding reconciliation between Cuba and America. Wow. Um, because the nature of, like, the way that America had, like, boycotted Cuba and everything meant, like, there's no American embassy there, there was no official yeah, ties, yeah. right? Howard's relationship with Castro became very um, close, as in um, romantic and intimate. Okay. While the assassination of JFK ended talks between the U.S. and Cuba, because his successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, was very, like, hardline about Cuba, uh, Howard continued to work on Cuba's behalf in the United States hosting Che Guevara in 1964 when he came to New York City to speak at the UN. This sort of ended up leading to ABC firing her over her, like, overt political views in 1965, um, which then led to her committing suicide with an overdose of sleeping pills in summer of that year. Wow. Yeah. That's really tragic. <sighs> so, Donovan's Brain was released... <laughs> On September 30th, 1953. Yeah, not really any way to, like, easily nope. transition back from that. Nope. Uh, it was and continues to be generally well-received by critics and audiences. Just not by Kurt Siedmak, who hated the movie, even though he never saw it. Um, but his primary objection to it was the ending, which changed the ending from his novel to a literal deus ex machina. The film is available today on DVD and Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, and you can stream it on FlixFling. All right. Well, folks, if you can watch along, Ben just told you how to get to it. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Donovan's Brain from 1953, directed by Felix Feist. See you on the other side, everybody. Thank you. 
Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Scream Scene. Sarah and Ben here to discuss Donovan's Brain from 1953, directed by Felix Feist. Sarah, what'd you think? Uh, it was alright. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah, it, you know, filled the 90 minutes or whatever. I, I thought it was a decently good movie. Um... Do you wanna do you wanna address the the elephant in the room here? You mean my Luke Skywalker standee? No, that's the Luke Skywalker in the room. Well, what's the elephant in the room? This isn't a horror movie. Oh, thank God. Okay, yeah. 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 This is like. This is. Um, it's definitely sci-fi. It's a film noir with a sci-fi premise. Hmm. I don't even think. No, I think this is definitely sci-fi because, like, if we compare it back to. Black Friday or Lady and the Monster or The Phantom Speaks, one thing I did notice is that it pulls back a lot on you actually having to care anything about, like, Donovan's actual whole deal. If you want to get a sense of this movie and you haven't seen it, a good sense of the tone would be this is a feature-length episode of The Twilight Zone. Yeah. I think that's what I would say. But Is The Twilight Zone on air? Uh, not by 1953, no. It's, I think it comes on the air 57 or 58. Okay. But... Regardless, talking about the differences between this and sort of previous iterations isn't really going to get us anywhere if we don't talk about, like, this movie's story. Yeah. So let me tell you. Mm-hmm. Our three main characters are Dr. Patrick Corey, his wife, Janice, and Dr. Frank Schratt, who is basically acting as an assistant to Corey and is, like, the doctor of this rural town where they live. Yeah. So they live in this rural town outside the city. I think it must be Los Angeles, but they definitely never say anything. No. And Corey is experimenting on keeping monkey brains alive after death. Um, His hope is to learn more about medical science to apply to people for future developments in brain transplants understanding how the brain functions, all these kinds of things. But you got to start with monkeys. Well, yeah. You can't just start ripping brains out of people. <laughs> um, we learned our lesson in the 40s. Right. The thing to remember is that, like, at the time, in the early 50s, like, the idea of, like, well, this part of the brain is responsible for this emotion or this kind of impulse wasn't super understood. And that's a big part of what he's trying to get at is, like, well, what chemically causes you to feel fear or happiness or whatever, right? Exactly. There is a flaw to his plan, but I'm going to talk about it later. So this is the fifth monkey that he's <laughs> trying this experiment out on. The past four have failed, but this one doesn't fail. The brain survives being taken out of the monkey and put into what looks to be like a fish aquarium. Yeah, it's like a fish tank filled with... Uh... Saline. Right. Now, he is assisted by Dr. Frank Schrett, who is an alcoholic, and as I said, the town's doctor. He's helping Corey on the side, and the town's teetotaler sheriff has it out for him. This town is up in the mountains, and nearby, a plane crashes. There are three dead, and one person is severely injured. And this turns out to be Warren H. Donovan. Now, because of the crash... The sheriff is trying to call the doc in town, and he's not there. He's over at Corey's helping with this experiment. So the sheriff calls up Corey, and he's like, yeah, I'll come help. There's no time to get 
Donovan to the hospital, so they take it to the Corey residence instead. And that's where he dies, despite Corey and Frank trying to do everything they can. But they go, no, there's nothing else we can do. He, he's gone. And then Dr. Corey goes, what if? What if we get his brain, put it into the saline solution? It's a perfect opportunity. And Jan and Frank are like, um, well, it is illegal to experiment on a corpse. That's what they say. Um, I think it's illegal unless you have permission. Yeah, yeah, that's what they mean. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I think he explicitly says it's illegal to, like, steal someone's brain out of their corpse or something. Which, like, <laughs> I'm sure... That's a very specific listen, situation. I'm sure it is, but I would like to see the law. <laughs> There's no law that says <laughs> you can't take someone's brain out of their skull. I... Mm, after they're dead. I'm sure it falls within the spirit of the law, if yes. not the letter. Right. We, we aren't operating on airbud logic. So they do this, and success, the brain is in the tank, in the saline solution, and they are getting brainwaves from it. Now, this brain is, like, half-submerged, um, and this liquid, it's saline, it's electrified, so they can kind of, like, monitor its impulses, um, its neurons. But it's also, like, a nutritional liquid, because they understand that, like, they have to kind of feed the brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's It's, like... The kind of, like, whatever your brain is floating around in in your skull, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, because Donovan was rich and previously in the news for tax evasion, police are involved. There's no autopsy of the body, um, but a reporter uh, talks Dr. Corey into letting him take photos of where Donovan died, and he happens to get a picture of the brain in the tank. Now, remember when I said that sheriff had it in for Dr. Frank? Yeah. Well, Frank gets fired because he wasn't at his office and because of being an alcoholic. So Frank basically moves in with the Corys. But this gives uh, him an opportunity to be involved in further experiments with the brain as well as be further involved in this movie. Throughout the course of their experiments, they're taking very meticulous notes and they notice that the brain is getting bigger as it absorbs this nutritional liquid. And they notice that, you know, the brain waves are becoming more active and they're changing a little bit. So Dr. Corey is like, hmm, if only we could communicate with this brain. I know, telepathy. <laughs> okay, so two things. One, this is the major flaw in Corey's plan, right? Because if the research he's wanting to do is to go like, okay, well, what areas of the brain are responsible for reacting to what stimuli... And you don't have a way of knowing what stimuli the brain is getting. Like, that's like saying, okay, I want to find out what makes four. I know two, but what's the other number, right? Like, Yeah. And so you have to do this with a live person. You have to do this with a person whose brainwaves you can monitor and then be like, you know, ha, I've poked you with a stick. And then, oh, what part lights up or whatever, right? As for this telepathy thing... I looked this up because Corey, the only justification that we get at all for the movie's like telepathy plotline. Yeah. Because like in past versions of this, it's like been a ghost or it's been a brain transplant. Or I think in Lady and the Monster, there was like some transmission equipment. 
Like there actually was like some scientific mechanism. This is just like the natural telepathy that humans can just do apparently. Cause like the, the mechanism is just Corey sits by the brain thinking really hard about Donovan until he clues in on Donovan's brain frequency essentially and starts receiving his thoughts. And the, the rationale they give for it is you remember those experiments at Duke university. So I was like, okay, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> so I went and looked this up. There was this botanist, or maybe he was a biologist, but he got interested in psychology. And he invented the field of parapsychology at Duke University. And he invented the idea of extrasensory perception and the idea that people could just, you know, read through the backs of playing cards and, like, read minds in this thing. And he had okay. this test that you did where... One person held playing cards and you couldn't see what they were. And you had to guess what cards were being drawn. And then, like, the higher you scored on the test, the higher an Esper rating you got. And the more, like, susceptible to telepathy you were, the more, you know, abilities you might have. What's interesting is this guy was, like, also really big on, like, um, disproving mediums and, like, things that he thought were frauds. Huh. Um, like, he, he really was convinced of like the scientific validity of what he was doing. And so he ha really had it out for people who were like full of bullshit. Um, he had test subjects who scored like, I think it was like 30% higher than what they should have just gotten by random chance. And with his higher ranking test subjects, he started doing this thing where he would take the person who was drawing the cards and the person who was guessing and put them like farther and farther apart until like they were in different rooms or like on different sides of the campus. And he still was having people who like had these good results. So he's like, aha, telepathy, it's real. Some people just can do it okay. basically. So th that's kind of where this is coming from. Um, it was much later, like after the sixties, I think found that um, this professor's like experimental um, methodology was flawed in a bunch of different ways. And okay. so these experiments aren't really valid anymore. But at the time it was like, oh yeah, this is maybe a thing. So in order to clue in to Donovan's brainwaves, they research all they can about Donovan. Um, this is how we learn about Donovan having a limp, um, kind of a sore back from like a kidney thing, um, being a big asshole, <laughs> this sort of thing. And Corey will sit in front of the tank Staring at the brain, trying to make contact. It works. Right. Yeah, otherwise <laughs> there's no movie. Um, he falls asleep with like this look on his face as if he's being controlled by the brain, and he writes a note in Donovan's handwriting for them to get in contact with a Nathaniel Fuller. Dr. Corey also starts imitating Donovan with the limp, his demeanor, and everything like that. Now, Janice and Frank think that this is just, like, a subconscious, like, thing. Like, you know when you hang out with a bunch of friends and, like, you pick up their mannerisms just from hanging out? They think that that's what's going on. They don't actually think that there's, like, a telepathic link. Yeah. But Corey continues with these experiments. And as Donovan, um, and you see him kind of come under, like, uh, telepathic control from Donovan, Corey gets into contact with Fuller in The City and gets back into Donovan's tax evasion and government official bribing ways. Yeah, it's this whole thing where, like, he's got this connection to some dude at, like, the treasury who's going to get him off the hook, but, like, the dude's like, right, but you were dead, so I turned state's evidence. And he's like, no, you fool. <laughs> and, of course, he's not, he looks like Corey, just dressed in, like, Donovan's suits, so he's having to convince people, like, yes, I am 
Donovan's authorized agent. Yeah, he never says, like, I am Donovan. He yeah. always comes up with some kind of cover story, basically. Frank and Jan are getting kind of worried, so Frank <laughs> goes to try to pull the plug, as it were, and um, the brain gets into contact with Corey, and he nearly murders Frank. He's, like, choking Frank at the breaker box. But they manage to get him off, and Corey's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know what came over me, whatever. This does kind of lead Dr. Corey as, or Donovan as, Dr. Corey as Donovan, going into the city and ordering certain equipment so that the brain tank can kind of run on its own without anyone's help. So it has, yeah. like, automatic feeding tubes and, like, runs on its, its own, like, electricity thing. So it's not connected to the house breaker anymore. Yeah. That reporter I mentioned before, he pops back up uh, to blackmail Corey. He puts two and two together. He saw the stitching on the head and the photo of the brain in the tank. Um, so he's like, hey, Doc, I know what you've done of, like, stealing a dead man's brain. You better give me some money. So he does, um, but the reporter comes back later to get more money. So Dr. Corey's like, well, why don't you uh, take a drive up and see the brain for yourself? Alone with the brain, the reporter comes under its telepathic control, and as he drives away, he drives off a cliff and his car explodes, classic movie style. At this point, Dr. Corey is barely able to break the telepathic control or connections with the brain, um, but whenever he is able to, he starts uh, recording his voice to have some kind of record of, like, Hey, help me. <laughs> right. Um, and he also tries to uh, get a plan to Janice about um, hooking up the electrical system to, like, this lightning rod on the roof and, and stuff like that. The recording equipment is also shown as being on during some of these um, backroom deals being made. So Corey is gathering evidence against Donovan. Right. It's a real Jekyll and Hyde situation. Yes. At a certain point... Donovan, as Corey, sets everything up with Fuller and his regular contacts that he doesn't feel the need for any further kind of pretense with Janice and Frank, and he doubles down on this when Janice confronts Donovan as Corey as being Donovan. Janice is basically like, I know you're Donovan, I know you're controlling him, enough with this farce. So Donovan's like, ah, if I don't need to keep up this pretense... Then time for murder. <laughs> You're right. We don't need to keep up with this farce. <laughs> During this conflict, Janice is basically trying to distract Donovan as Corey, while Frank takes a gun into the tank room and goes to shoot the brain. And he misses twice. From, like, three feet away at a stationary target. Yes, it is... And the brain at this point has gotten very large for this tank. Like, it's not like it's swimming around. It's it's right in a single spot. And yeah. he still misses. And that's when we see the brain start to have some telepathic control over Frank. And Frank turns the gun onto himself and shoots himself. Yeah. It's... When it, we, you always know when the brain's doing its thing because it pulses and glows from within, which yes. is great. It's, it's a pretty cool effect. Donovan then switches control back onto Corey with Janice and is about to attack Janice 
just as, um, by the way, there was a thunderstorm gathering. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> lightning strikes the lightning rod, blows up the brain and the system. It's like literally on fire, and Donovan is destroyed. Next scene is Corey is is seen cooperating with the police with his recordings, all of the meticulous notes they have to kind of have evidence of, no, really, this brain was controlling what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But he's also going into a hearing for, you know, stealing a man's brain. He's basically owning up to his uh, wrongdoings and Donovan's. And, oh, hey, Frank is okay. Right, yeah, Frank's fine. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Jan, like, asks the, like, tax detectives... Um, like, hey, is my husband gonna, you know, go to jail or whatever? They're like, well, it depends on, like, how well he cooperates with us. As for, you know, being a doctor after this, it does depend on, like, what the medical board thinks about him keeping his license. You know. Yeah. We'll see. The end. So as far as the things about this movie that I did like, the brain effects were pretty neat. Yeah. Um, the science part of everything... Except for the telepathy made sense. But you explaining the telepathy now um, helps that make sense. So it all feels very logical. It, has a, it has a good sense of verisimilitude is what it yeah. is, right? Like yeah. the science at least feels like real science because they're using like real science words and they're like taking notes and they're doing like scientific method. It doesn't feel like a mad scientist in a horror movie. Right. It's not trying to do that. I liked how the police, even though, like, the police we see are from the Treasury Department, they aren't, yeah, like... they're like federal agents. Yeah. Um, they're shown as competent. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not the, like, comedic relief. There's not really any comedic relief in this movie. Yeah, that's true. It's a very, like sober movie, I guess you could say. <laughs> but, I mean, we've talked about in previous episodes about the shift in how police are being portrayed in films here in the 50s. Yeah. Um, I think this is a, another film to kind of slot as evidence under that. What did you like about the movie? Um, well, you know, as we said, not horror. But for what it is, which is like a little low-budget sci-fi movie, I think it acquits itself fairly well. I think Lou Ayers gives a good performance as Donovan and Corey. They're both clearly, like, different personas. You can recognize when he's one or the other. Um, I think he does a really good job there. I also actually really liked Gene Evans' performance as Frank Schratt. Yeah. Schratt is, like, a weird character. I really liked that character. Um, he, he's very likable and easy for you to get behind, which is interesting for, like, an alcoholic doctor in, like, a movie from the 50s. And... What's even more interesting is there's no, like, attempt to, like, sober him up or, like, redeem him in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, like, he's just shown to be, like, a genuinely good guy who has a drinking problem, right? So I really like him. I really like Shrat. Um I also really liked Frank. He was very cute. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, Nancy is fine as Janice. Like, uh, she's She's fine. nothing. Yeah. There's nothing there. It's like cotton candy. I I will say this. She comes across as more potentially believable as, like, her husband's science assistant than, like, some of the actresses we've seen put in roles like that before. Like, in the sense of, you know, an actress being there who's, like, clearly, like, a a blonde bombshell pinup model type. 
you know, and you just don't buy it. Like, Lou Ayers is too old for her by, like, 13 years. But I think Nancy being a bit older herself helps with kind of buying the idea that, like, she's uh, part of this. She helps out with the experiments because she used to be a nurse, Mm -hmm. it's said in dialogue. But I didn't like Janice. Yeah. But I also had a really hard time with the way that Corey treats her. Okay, yeah, I, I want to dig into this a bit more. Because, um, like, he literally says, like, like she's like, oh, do we have to kill this monkey? And he's like, listen, baby, do this for me, will ya? Yeah, it's, it's, he's a really <laughs> weird character because he is a man in his 50s who's a scientist who talks like real douchey 50s, like, guy, um... Like, some of his dialogue is what you would expect to hear in something like Rebel Without a Cause. Right. I mean, maybe maybe just everybody talked like that at that time. Maybe. But the, the thing about Corey as a character is, you know, I mentioned earlier it's a real Jekyll and Hyde situation. And I'm, I'm sure that, like, in the 50s, the idea was, like, we're supposed to be on Corey's side, he's supposed to be sympathetic. But, yeah, he's... Very misogynistic to his wife. Um, not, like, in a microaggression way. Absolutely. Right? Like, he's like, well, where's dinner? Um, yeah, hey, he... can you take these notes and then go make me a sandwich? Yeah, Thanks, like, hon. pretty much literally he, he says he that. He says that, and she's like, oh, of course, dear, right away. Like, she's helping him with his experiments in the sense of she's the one taking all the notes. She's the one, you know, typing up all the handwritten notes into things. She's the one doing all the clerical work. Yeah. Right? And Which was pretty common for even for like writers for their wives to be doing yeah that to do stuff. their be their editors be their whatever but like it is something where you're going well she's not really an equal partner right and then we have Corey's friendship with Frank Pat's friendship with Frank we keep like going back and forth about whether we're using last names or first names it's because Doctor Corey has a first name for a last name yeah so. Pat's friendship with Frank is questionable because the sense that I got is that the reason why Schratt has to help out Dr. Corey with his, like, ethically dubious let's take some brains out of monkeys experiments and, like, his ethically dubious, like, let's take a brain out of a dude experiments and all this other kind of crap is because Schratt is an alcoholic and we consistently see through the movie um, before Shrek gets fired eventually Corey covering for him mm-hmm. and like that's like you know after Donovan dies on the operating table right uh, there's like a an inquest where his like family is like hey why did he die and the sheriff kind of tries to pin it on Shrek for being like hey he's a drunkard and Corey's the one who has to step in and be like no 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 no, no. everything was fine this is the best guy you'd ever meet you know he also makes no efforts at all to help Frank with his drinking problem. Yeah. Like, he just... He doesn't, like, actively encourage it. Right. But but he he just kind of leaves it alone. And so it gave me the feeling like he was using Frank. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and then he uses his wife. It's just... It's stuff that probably no one would have batted an eyelash at in the 50s, but it makes him less sympathetic, I think, to a modern audience. Yeah, and I think that impacts perhaps why we don't see this as horror because if we saw Corey as a good guy 
then we would be like, oh no, he's being, like, manipulated in this way. Whereas, like, I was... I didn't have any sympathy for him at all. I had more sympathy for Frank and Janice. Yeah. Donovan is shittier than Corey. Because Donovan's, like, a Donald Trump-esque figure. Basically. Um, But, yeah, there isn't really a sense, like... Okay, so speaking of Donovan, I still... This movie still did not lead me to care about Donovan or whatever it is he's up to, but I was thankful that there's just way less of it here than there was in Lady and the Monster. Yeah. Like, Lady and the Monster tried to create this whole big convoluted subplot out of Donovan's dealings that I just couldn't care about, right? Where it was like something about his son and could he inherit and blah, 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 blah. Remember all that crap? Here it's just, it's a plot to bribe some guys in the treasury or even, I think he's blackmailing them also, so that he gets off for tax evasion. Which is wild, because it's like, my dude, you're, you're, dead. you're legally dead. And all of his bank accounts are under fake names anyway. So it's like, just take your money out of the bank and go. But he yeah. wants to like resume his business empire. But the point is, is like you don't have to be following that. Yeah. But... The fact that all he is doing is kind of just some, like, backroom dirty deals means that, like, the horror of having your brain be controlled by this other person is kind of lessened. Yeah, he's just a corrupt businessman. Right. It's just like, oh, you know, it's so horrific. I lose control of my body and I go buy million-dollar suits and stay in, like, six-star hotel suites and, like, drive fancy cars. Oh, what a horrific nightmare this experience is. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I think that's a big part why it doesn't feel like horror. There is, like, stuff where, like, Donovan tries to kill, you know, Frank or Jan while, like, using Corey's body. But it's, like, the same, you know, it's like, it's action beat stuff, yeah. right? It's, yeah. like, it's not horror when, like, the Gorn tries to kill Captain Kirk at the end of a Star Trek episode, right? Yeah. And it, it's not shot like a horror film. No. It's not even shot. Like a film noir. It's just no. kind of shot straight on. Yeah, it's it's shot the way that, like, a lot of these 50s B-movies have been shot, which is um, flat. Yeah. Very matter-of-factly. Which, to be fair, the matter-of-factness helps with what we were saying earlier with the verisimilitude, right? Like, one of the big differences between this and Lady and the Monster is that this feels much more just like a straight movie, Whereas, like, Lady and the Monster, the way... It's much more queer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in an academic sense, yes. Um, But, like, Lady and the Monster upped that horror feeling because, like, the experiments were happening in, like, Castle Frankenstein. Yeah. You know, and there was, like, lightning and there was a big, like, Frankenstein-esque lab. And, like, you had Eric von Stroheim being, like, this evil, crazy, bald, Lex Luthor-ass mad scientist and, like, lightning storms and all kinds of crazy shit. And they really tried to make it feel like horror. Whereas this, like, you know, we're at Corey's house. You know, out in, like, the dunes or whatever. Yeah, it looked like, um, it might be, like, the town adjacent to Neanderthal Man. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Was there anything else that you wanted to comment on here, Sarah? Um, just that it has some of the common, like, not a lot of money here Hmm. things, like back and forth from home to city, kind of like the pacing problems there. 
Um, I just want to correct something I said a little bit earlier of the lighting. There is some cool lighting near the beginning um, before the brain starts to control Corey. Mm. Um, there's like some like neat uses of lighting and shadow, but for the majority of this movie, it's flat. The um, coolest looking shots are the shots of the brain. Absolutely. Yeah, it actually grows in size. It's pulsating, both in terms of like the physical thing and with light. When it's <laughs> at the end, when it's mad, it, it like wiggles. Yeah, it rocks back and forth. Um, when it kills the reporter, it, it wiggles as if it's laughing like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the brain is probably the best part of this movie. So I, I think I ended up liking this more than you did. But there was one major thing that I really disliked about this movie that I think undercut a lot of that, like, sober scientific feel it was going for. means that it really makes the ending bad. And it, I know it's, like, a big thing that C and Mac really strenuously objected to with this movie. Um, which is that this movie has, like, a very heavy religious streak. Yeah, it does. It feels very production code mandated as if like well this is what you're gonna have to do in order to tell this like weird ass story about this brain in a jar taking control of this other guy because like when they take the brain out and they're trying to like contact it frank's telling him like this isn't gonna work this is stupid like you're not gonna contact it because it's just a brain in a jar like what you're trying to find is the soul and like that's not our job right we're just doctors that's outside our jurisdiction right and then, like, there's a lot of mention of, like, you know, what you're doing is unholy, uh, to which Corey's uh, repost is, really? Then why did God allow me to succeed so far? Yeah, which um, is, like, ooh. And given all that, I'm actually kind of surprised Corey lives at the end. Yeah. Because of, like, how much effort is put on the idea of, like, him playing God and going against, like, what is holy and sacred by fucking around with brains and souls and shit. But ultimately... The way that this all comes to a head, like where all of this religious stuff all throughout the movie is going, is the thunderstorm. Yeah, the thunderstorm and then the lightning hitting yeah. the pole just as Janice is about to be killed. Yeah, because it's, it's not just like, oh, this random thunderstorm came out of nowhere and saved the day. I mean, they try to make it justified by being like, well... Corey gave her the instructions earlier to like put the lightning rod up there, but like okay, it still, like, didn't have to be stormy on that exact day. She could have died, and then, like, three weeks later, the lightning hits the thing, and whose help is that for, right? Yeah. No, it's right at that exact moment, and it's really heavily implicated that, like, this is the wrath of God, right? This is God coming in like the cavalry to save the day. This is literally a deus ex machina ending. Yeah, which also makes me go, like, well, you couldn't save Frank. I mean, Frank's fine. Frank's fine. But... You couldn't have done it when Frank was about to shoot himself. Yeah, it just makes the ending really unsatisfying compared to the ending of, like, the book, where it's this, like, telepathic battle of wills. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, uh, yeah. It's fine. It's fine. Um, Honestly, I, I would, between watching Donovan's Brain and Lady and the Monster as adaptations, I would probably watch Lady and the Monster again. Oh, man, I, I definitely go the other way. I would rather watch Donovan's Brain because there isn't 
so much convoluted bullshit with Donovan. Sure. That, like, didn't, that, like, never made sense. And then, like, <laughs> some fucking, like, detective had to come in in the last scene and be like, so, here's what the significance of all of those scenes were, because you just weren't told what was happening for the majority of the movie. I yeah. found that really frustrating. Okay. But regardless, I think this is a non-applicable movie with regards to the list. Yeah, I agree. Everyone's like, this is a horror movie, and now we're going against the current, against the common refrain. But we've seen how this kind of premise and story straddles that line between horror and crime thriller or something else in the past. Um, Because both Black Friday and Phantom Speaks fell into that crime thriller Mm -hmm. category. Only Lady and the Monster has been horror. Because they went with the aesthetic, right? Like, they, they went for it. Yeah, I think in this case, where I would put this, if I had to put it somewhere, is sci-fi. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, if you folks would like to check out the list anyways, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest us putting Donovan's brain on the not applicable list, uh, you can submit your appeal through our ask box. You can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and over our RSS feed. Uh, if you want to help out the show, you can leave us a rating or a review on, uh, I think Apple Podcasts is like the number one place to do that. Um, or you can just share the show on social media through Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook. Any platform. Yeah, whatever platform you feel like. Google Plus? You have to, No, that definitely doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> whatever platform you feel like you have the most influence with, please share our show. <laughs> Uh, or you can head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the 5 and $10 level get access to bonus content. We really appreciate it if you can support the show like that. We know that times are tough for everybody right now, and there's a lot of other things that might uh, require your monetary attention. Um, but if you have an extra buck to throw our way, we really appreciate it. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. So, Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, next week is going to be a big change. Okay. For one thing, we're going back in time. Oh. We're going all the way back to 1935. Whoa. And we're going to Mexico. Hey, but uh, we're not allowed to travel, Ben. We are in 1935. Okay. So, uh, you may remember... We watched uh, films like El Fantasma del Convento or Dos Monjes from Juan Oro. So we are seeing another film of his uh, from 1935. Uh, It is called El Misterio del Rostro Palido, which means the mystery of the pale face. Oh, interesting. Yep. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. So am I. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.